let's get stuck into the Word. I'd like to welcome Aaron up as he shares with us the two-part series of Coming Unstuck. Thank you, Aaron. Kind words. Good morning. Perfect. I hope everyone's had a good weekend, and I am glad to be here. I am filled with joy today. Uh, recently, uh, for some reason, and I, can't, I don't have a good explanation, uh, I was... Um, filled with nervousness before I did this sort of thing, and recently it's gone away. And so I'm just, um, it's fun. Yeah. Thank you. And today I'm excited to share uh, about uh, a second part of Becoming Unstuck. Um, this is a certainly a companion to what I shared last week, but uh, if you weren't here, I, I trust and hope that it will be useful and helpful and something to think about. But I just wanted to because it's a continuation or a companion, can I just start with a couple of, uh, I just want to set the scene because we started last week. And so this is what we talked about last week, that there are things in our life that trap us and hold us back. And they trap us where we are and they um, cause us to be stuck. Things like our thoughts and our behaviors and some of our habits. We talked about fixing our minds on what is above and um, that it matters where we center our imaginations, what we think about. And these things stop us from being like wheat that is edible for the world. We talked about how the Pharisees had uh, carried on with a practice that had been useful at one time, but it was no longer useful, that they uh, loved the rules and they had lost the sight of God in their keeping of the rules. And, and I just we talked about and invited us to think about where we might be doing the same thing. And the useful parts, are we like invite, an invitation to walk with others, to collapse the dualism, get God's promises into us, and to pray to answer God with our prayers? So that's what we talked about last week. Hopefully you're thinking, oh, okay, yes, that's right. You know, I know there's a lot of things that go on in a week. You don't, you know, there's a lot of other information that comes in. So I am not a true sports fan in the sense of being like a super fan who knows about statistics and that sort of things. But Anna and I just really love hype. We love like a good, excellent event. And so we watched a game of the Soccer World Cup or football, which is an important distinction, at the Football World Cup um, on Saturday, we have a very loud, very efficient, very regular and reliable blonde-haired, blue-eyed alarm clock these days. And so that makes it easy to get up at these novel times of 6am to watch TV. And the game was between Portugal and Spain. And it was one of the most exciting games of football that I've seen. It was, there was great goals. There were great haircuts. Um, that seems to be quite important, quite an important part of football. But Cristiano Ronaldo, who is arguably, I don't know enough to be able to argue strongly, the greatest player in the world, he stepped up in the 88th minute to take a penalty kick. And you've probably seen the highlights if you're in any way interested. He just hit this superb uh, strike and it just boomed into the goal and the goalie didn't move and they drew the game three all, which uh, was a great achievement for them. And when I saw that, I was thinking about how many people probably could do that, could have a similar kick. Um, you know, when they're at practice, they might line up 100 and get one, and they could sort of claim that they could do it. But for him, in the world stage, with the spotlight, with the mantle of being the most, uh, the most celebrated player in the world, for him to do that in the 88th minute in the World Cup, I found that incredible. 
And I also I love to watch the later rounds of like a grand slam of tennis. And, and one of the very interesting quirks of tennis, and I don't know any other sports like it, but you're expressly prohibited from being coached during the game. You'll see players who are in a battle, they're two sets down, they're not playing too well. And it's up to them to investigate why the opponent is cracking into their weaknesses, why their shots aren't going in. And they have to rally themselves to bring themselves to a fifth set. We are, need to be the same. We need to, it's all nice and well and good to know in theory that there are these good things, these good ideas, these good truths. But we need to be able to live them in the 88th minute, in, in the pressure moment, in the fifth set. We need to be able to rally ourselves in our life. Is that true? If we're going to be people who are becoming unstuck, we need to be able to coach ourselves when we fall back and when our old ways come knocking on the door. We need to, when we find ourselves in a hard situation and it seems like we're two sets down, we need to encourage ourselves. When we master this skill, when we can bring to mind truth in the midst of a situation, we will live happily, peacefully, victoriously. We will live in purpose and we will be a source of life to our friends and our family, ourselves and others. Amen? So we're going to take a uh, journey through the story of Exodus this morning. I'm going to have a whistle-stop summary of chapters 16 through 32. I know, I wanted to read it out, but that would be a prank. Um, and I'm, I'm assuming a little bit of familiarity with the story in my summary. So I just wanted to say that, and I want to invite anybody, uh, and maybe all of us, to have a look and to have a refresh of our mind of, of those um, 16 chapters of the Old Testament. But this is the journey. So I'm picking up chapter 16. They have been freed. Um, It's after the plagues, after walking through the Red Sea. uh, And they have been freed. They are no longer in slavery. They are free. It is the journey of a people miraculously freed by God, beginning the hard work of learning to live free as people of God. So as soon as they're free, God leads them to an oasis called Elam, where there is water and where there are date palms. As they start off following God into the desert, God provides for them, first with water, then with manna, then with quail, meeting their physical needs, all the while tolerating the people's grumbling and dissension. These people are distrustful and they're desperate. They're babies learning a new way. God begins to institute new timetables into their week. The Sabbath day is installed for rest. And God confirms uh, this because the special food manna doesn't spoil on Saturday night. It's still good on Sunday morning when it spoils all of the other days of the week. As they continue on their journey, God is in regular contact with Moses, regularly encouraging him. And as Moses leads, and he leads well, he takes every opportunity he can to bring other people along with him. A couple of times he brings the 70 elders along to take part. They witness Moses striking the rock at Horeb to get water for the whole nation. They're there. God's newly freed nation is pestered by an enemy called the Amalekites who come out to fight them. And God shows his power through the upraised hands of Moses giving them victory in a battle when his hands are above his head. These, are, these people are a precious people to God, and he won't have them being attacked while they're vulnerable. 
And this attack by the Amalekites earns them the ire of God. They are one of the very few nations that God uh, decrees be totally destroyed when they do take over the promised land. God begins to teach his people how to practically live free. He brings Jethro to give advice to Moses to set up order and to do, um, have a system uh, for judging and deciding on things so all of the weight isn't just on one person. Moses now has the capacity to reserve his energy for the big calls. They arrive at Sinai. Moses makes his first trip up the mountain to speak with God. God fills his newly filled people with blessing. They receive a new purpose. They are to be a kingdom of priests. And God begins to train his people about their relationship with him. He teaches them that he is holy by requiring them to be washed and cleansed and free of sexual relations in order to meet with him. He sets up boundaries around the mountain to show that he is holy. And then with terrifying sights and sounds, Moses is called up the mountain for a second visit. Again, showing his people that he's trustworthy. God showing his people that he's trustworthy. After his, uh, God is speaking with Moses on his second visit, he then, God speaks to, directly to the whole people. And he tells them, these are the safety railings. These are the boundaries. These are the parameters which will truly give you life. They will truly give you freedom and cause you to flourish. And he gives them the 10 words, the 10 commandments. The people get a taste of what it's like to directly, that's a thing, to directly uh, deal with God. Is that an evacuation moment? No? Good. In case of an evacuation in the future, there are doors to your left and to your right. So please avail yourself of those if ever the flashing light truly comes on. But the people get a, I'm, I'm not sure if I should wait. All the kids are evacuating, that's cute. I'm going to carry on, and I trust that um, people are strong in their attention. Um, there it is. Uh, people see what it's like to deal directly with God, and they are terrified, and they say to Moses, you do that part for us. Please do that for us. They, the people hear the guidelines that Moses has given for justice, for living, for business, for uh, how to be clean. And they say to God, yes, we will keep these commandments. They agree with one voice. Yes, we will do all that you have said. And God invites Moses up the mountain for a third trip. And this time he is able to take 70 of the elders with him. And the elders see God. They feast on his presence. And then Moses and Joshua carry on up to the summit. God knows that this own people creation project is going to need more than safety rails and boundaries. He knows that these are a physical taste, touch, uh, sense people. And so he starts to tell Moses about all of the ways, all of the physical needs and the ways that he's going to retrain their imagination through the creation of the tabernacle, the curtains, the gold, the Ark of the Covenant, the priesthood, the purification rituals, the death of animals, the recipe for oils. And in the midst of listening to all of this, how to set up this creative creation project, Moses and Joshua are commanded to go down the mountain. So we're going to read from Exodus chapter 32. That was 15 chapters. So well done, everyone. Exodus 32, verse 1. 
Exodus 32, verses 1 to 14. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early, sacrificed burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink, going on to indulge in revelry. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and they have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. They are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But, but Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger and relent. Do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by yourself, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give you descendants, give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented. He did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Okay, that was a long introduction. Just have a little shake. Give yourself a little bit of, like, maybe take a deep breath. Becoming unstuck, truly changing, truly dropping the habits and the stuck thoughts is going to require coaching ourselves through failure. And that's what I want to talk about today, coaching yourself through failure. And I've based this talk, I guess, on the assumption that I'm not the only one who experiences semi-regular, sometimes regular failure. If that's, a bad, if that's a wrong assumption, then listen for your friends and your people that you know really need to hear this. The first thing, becoming unstuck means understanding the character of God. You know, this is the climax of a remarkable and amazing story. And the climax is a failure of remarkable and amazing proportions. It's hard to believe and it, that it's even possible that Aaron and the elders with him, who have just seen God, would do this. But we see that the character of God is that he is for his people. Look at the way God has treated them. After freeing them, he leads them to an oasis. He leads them onward and he's furious when they're attacked and gives them victory. He tolerates grumbling. He provides for physical needs. The people haven't done a single part in their rescue and they haven't done a single thing for themselves afterwards. It's all been what God has done for them. To the degree possible and to the degree that the people can handle it, God has allowed them to come near to himself. Obviously that's different for Moses and then the elders and then the people, but he's tried to bring people near. 
And he's been gentle and gradual with growth, first instituting the rhythms of the week, then introducing ways to holiness and abstinence and washing, and then the law and order and that sort of thing. God is for us, but his character is also justice. After all that he has done, these people deserve to be destroyed and to be put away with. Sin separates people from God. It separates us from God. And the people here have come up with history's biggest and most popular insult to God, saying, I did it. I deserve the credit. It was these, you know, putting, taking God's glory and putting it on something that I have just made. And this justice is displayed in the consequences as you read on. 3,000 men are killed. There's a plague. Um, God says, I'm not going with you anymore. And Moses has to beg for him to come and uh, not give up on his people. But how much does it show that God is for us if he is even willing to overlook this? How much does it say about the things that we have done uh, as well, that he is he is so for us that he will overlook something as great as these people building an idol and saying it was that when they've just seen the physical presence of God. And understanding God's character is important because in failure, it often leads us to, to decide what God must think of us. Oh, he must hate me. He must want to throw me out. He must have finally given up on me now. Sin separates us from God but it doesn't separate God from us. When we understand God's character, we have our proportions in perspective. Proportions like how much is our part and how much is God's part. Look at the contribution that Israel made to their own sustainment and guidance and protection. Nothing but obeying instructions, listening to God and asking for help. All of the doing is God's provision Help and the protection is is all God's part. Understanding proportions like God's power versus Satan's power. You know, I I was thinking this week about how this incident with the Amalekites is, is a good illustration of understanding the difference between God's power and the enemy's power. You know, growing up, I kind of didn't get it too much. I kind of thought they were similar or God was a bit bigger and a bit stronger. But this shows that I didn't understand the overarching greatness of God and the relative size and strength of the enemy. And I think this comparison is quite a good one. God, um, yeah, the enemy is just like the little Amalekites who God is like, don't, don't, don't do that to my people. They're, they're special to me. God is abundantly, overarchingly, totally, completely for his people. Uh, Ancient Egypt was, by some measures, one of the most uh, religious uh, countries or nations that the world has ever seen. Their gods were everywhere, and they had gods for everything at every level of society. People tried to use the gods to control all the uncontrollable things in their life. Everything from the rising and the falling of the Nile, to birth, to naming of children, to the future— Pharaoh himself claimed to be divine. He was worshipped as such. Some of their triangular religious projects are still in pretty good condition today. They were religious people. And God's chosen people had come out of a 430-year apprenticeship in this God-make-your-own-religious life. So we see Aaron deciding in his panic to create these idols. 
And that's not, when we understand where he's come out of, we can get a little bit of perspective on how that happened. He wasn't doing some new idea. This was a relapse into the behavior, into needing to have control, into having the physical thing there. He knew in the natural that Moses couldn't survive 40 days and 40 nights without food and water. And so he panicked and he caved into his people. And I want to say that becoming unstuck is a bit like swinging on a trapeze. That we have to fully let go of the first bar and then spend some time in the air before we catch on to the second bar. Time in the air is uncomfortable. It's unknown. It's unsure. It feels unsafe. We need to recognize that when we stop doing something, that there's this time of feeling in the air before we catch on and our new thinking and our new behavior holds us safe and holds us steady. That time in the air might be 30 days. It might be 18 months. It might be five years. I'm not sure. But we have to be kind to ourselves when we're doing something new. We've been giving ourselves a certain type of stimulus maybe. And then without that, our brain's like, where's that nice juicy chocolate treat or uh, that's a metaphor I don't know what you know what I mean hopefully but being unstuck becoming unstuck means recognizing the depths of our habits Um, I've been in one serious cycling crash in my life I was cycling with a friend uh, out the back of Karori, and I had just decided that, yes, I would go in for the full high-speed, touch-the-brakes-if-you're-very-careful sort of experience down the hill that we were riding down. And I was at university at the time, so it was during one of those uh, times of the week that probably uh, only is open uh, in the holidays these days with work and that sort of thing. It was probably a weekday afternoon. I know. Imagine doing something like that on a weekday afternoon. But about midway down the hill, I I got this very tiny warning of this tick, 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 and then my front tire exploded. And uh, without air in your tire, turning is extremely difficult. And um, I was headed to a corner, toward a corner. So I had like one of my feet out of my cleats, and I was like doing like a skiing sort of thing to try and slow myself down. Um, But the point of this is failure doesn't mean that we have made no progress. And it doesn't mean that we're never going to make it. Even though I crashed, even though I didn't know where I was and I was telling my friend afterward, man, I must have fallen asleep at the wheel of my bike. That's weird. Even though uh, my helmet was far less structurally sound and there was a lot more blood on the outside of my body than on the inside of my skin, I wasn't back at the start. And when we fail, we need to take a look at the journey that we've gone on and the place that we have got to. Because it's so tempting to think, and we, get, we have so much pressure to think, crap, like I'm, I can't say that in church probably, sorry. Uh, we, we think, man, I'm back at the start. I'm never going to get over this. I'm never going to succeed. Becoming unstuck means retaining proper perspective. You know, depending on the size of your failure, it might be a dust yourself off, get on gingerly again with it, or it might be the full bright yellow van ride to the hospital sort of thing. But we're not back at the start, and we are making progress. Becoming unstuck means being able to have realistic expectations. Moses had already made two trips up the mountain. 
before he spent 40 days and 40 nights with God, he didn't, God didn't just whisk him off altogether once and give him the full download. God had showed, him, uh, showed the elders and the people that this was a safe thing that Moses was doing. He'd instituted a system of judging and governing. And to coach ourselves through failure, we too need to be realistic in our expectations. God stepped the people through. He stepped them along, small uh, small and medium and bigger, and he wants to do that with us as well. And as we change and as we become unstuck, we need to be similar in that. We need to take small steps and then bigger steps and then bigger steps. When we decide, I'm going to become an expert at this straight away, that's, that's a recipe for failure. So becoming unstuck means having realistic expectations. And the final way that I wanted to suggest that we can coach ourselves through failure is to realizing that wallowing is for sows. So much damage is done when we wallow in shame and in condemnation. When we fail, especially if it's a sin issue, we need to be glad that we feel terrible. We need to be thankful that the Holy Spirit is convicting us. But we shouldn't wallow. If we read and listen carefully, Moses doesn't skip a beat when Israel's failure uh, is brought to his attention. He doesn't go down the mountain and see for himself and survey how bad it was and uh, think, oh man, I better wait like a certain number of days of feeling bad before I'm then allowed to go and plead with God that please can you uh, relent. He does it straight away. He gets straight into dealing with it. He pleads to God straight away to relent. And then he does go down and he does take action. That does happen too. And I found this great quote from George MacDonald who wrote in the 1800s. He was uh, an inspiration and a mentor to C.S. Lewis. And I've, I've de-1800s-ified this a little bit. But George MacDonald had an epic beard that would make today's um, epic beards like look quite good but not good enough. And it, he wrote this. We remain and are such creeping Christians because we look at ourselves and not at Christ, because we gaze at the marks of our own soiled feet and the trail of our own defiled garments. Having committed a petty fault, we mourn over the defilement to ourselves and the shame of it before our friends and children. Instead of hastening to make the due confession and amends to our fellow, And then forgetting ourselves with our well-earned disgrace, lift our eyes up to the glory, which that alone will quicken the true man in us. To forget ourselves and to lift our eyes up to glory is what we need to do when we are failing. Wallowing will not get us anywhere, but lifting our eyes up to Jesus will get us through failure. We can only coach ourselves through failure with the help of Jesus. Becoming unstuck means correctly understanding the character of God, knowing that he is abundantly for us, knowing that he works for us, carrying the load, doing all of the heavy lifting, not just some of it, all of the heavy lifting, if we'll lift our hands to him. Knowing how much power he has in proportion to the enemy is also understanding the character of God, that this thing isn't going to get us forever, that God is so much greater and bigger than what we're dealing with. We can coach ourselves through failure by recognizing the depth of our habits, having proper perspective on progress, and doing away with wallowing for good. 
I just want to finish today. Um, perhaps I could have somebody who makes beautiful music here if they're available to do some beautiful music. But if they're not, then we can all listen anyway. But God's, God's own people creation project began with the law and with the tabernacle, and it went on to the temple. And uh, it came to fruition in Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, who came and lived out all of the instructions that Moses received and lived them perfectly, he was holy. Because he was holy, he was able to take our place and pay the ultimate cost for sin. In his death, he brought freedom. His death is our Exodus story. His spilling of blood is our Red Sea on dry land escape. His example and the life that he lived and the accounts that we have is what we have to train our imagination in the God's own people creation project. Through Jesus, God has brought us into relationship with himself. Relationship means dependence. It means trust. Aaron panicked because the requirement was trust, not action. And trust is way harder. And his project continues, right? His project. God is still calling people to himself, still retraining them in how to live. And I wanted to finish today by inviting you to uh, take the emblems that Jesus uh, installed for us as one of the sacraments through which we retrain our imagination, which is the communion meal that he invited us to take in remembrance of him. And, and I want us to be people to continue to encourage us to be people who are walking together, um, who are walking together through failure and through life. And so I just want to invite you today to, to stand up and to go and grab um, the juice and the bread and then to bring the communion back to your row and then to enjoy that and pray for the people, a couple of people with you. Um, if you don't know what communion is, if, if, that's ter- if that's something that you're not sure about, then please feel comfortable in just staying seated. But I want to invite um, us to continue to walk with each other and to take communion uh, with our friends and with the people um, that we're here with today. Is that okay? Um, I'm just going to pray and then people will do that if that's cool. Father God, I thank you, Lord, that you uh, have taken all of our failure on yourself, Lord, We have, like Aaron and like Israel, Father, made little uh, poor gods, and we have uh, decided that that's what's important, Father. We've made terrible choices, and we thank you, Father, that you have done with our failure, Lord, that you have made a way for us. And and we remember that with this meal, Lord, with this bread and with with this wine. Thank you, Lord. Amen. know that some people are still praying, but I just wish to share like one last um, word of encouragement. I, when I was preparing and praying, um, I really felt like God uh, encouraged me to share this, and, and so I share it, and I pray that this is um, a word and an encouragement for someone. But I feel like God uh, brought to my um, attention uh, Isaiah 42 verse 3. Uh, which is part of a proclamation of the character of God to come, um, of Jesus to come before he had come. And it says this, it says, What is bruised and bent he will not break. He will not blow out a smoldering candle. Or um, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. 
So I just want to pray, um, if you are here today and you are feeling just like an ember that is, um, is a little bit glowing, but it's really needing of some breath and some life and of some uh, Holy Spirit to, to coach that and to tend that and to nurse that back into flame, I just want to pray for you today. So Father, I thank you that your character is one of gentleness and care. And I pray for anyone here who is feeling like the smoldering um, candle, like an ember that just hasn't got uh, the fire and the flame of life. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would show that you care for them, you would uh, breathe and blow life into them, and that you would gently and quietly and softly and and nicely, Lord, uh, blow them back into a flame to encourage them and to bring hope and life where that's currently missing. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.